Empower Radio presents the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello, hello, and welcome, everyone. You're listening to the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. I'm Dr. Julie Crawl. Hey, can one person change the world? What do you think? And do you believe that service and education could possibly end poverty? Today's guest says yes. He empowers youth to transform their neighborhoods and the world through intensive community service. Globally, they're constructing a new school every three days in some of the economically poorest countries around the world. Imagine they are breaking the cycle of poverty, illiteracy, and low expectations through service learning programs in many of America's most under-resourced high schools and by building schools in some of the world's poorest villages. I invite you to take a few deep breaths, bring your awareness into this moment, open your mind, connect with your heart, and settle into your essential self as I welcome our guest. Jim Zulkowski is the founder, president, and CEO of Build On, a nonprofit organization that builds schools in developing countries while also running after-school service programs in America's toughest inner cities. At home or abroad, Jim's goal is to break the cycle of poverty, illiteracy, and low expectations through service and education. Inspired by his own travels to some of the most impoverished countries in the world and his experiences living in Harlem, Jim derailed his fast-track career in corporate finance at GE to dedicate his life to build on, and now he's the author of the book, Walk in Their Shoes. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. It's very good to be here, Dr. Julie. Oh, thank you. You know, I am exceptionally honored to have you today. I I interview a lot of incredible people, but what you are doing for the lives of so many people just totally inspires me. So thank you for joining us here. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for doing what you're doing and, and helping uh, spread the word on our, our work and, and the work and the important activities of so many other folks. Oh, thank you. Well, it is a delight. And we, we do have a, a tradition here on the Dr. Julie Show, a perennial question that I like to start our interview out with. So I'm going to start with that, Jim. What does all things connected mean to you? Well, I think uh, for me, all things connected would mean perfect solidarity, being with each other, alongside each other, lifting each other up when we need to. And I think that there's an incredible opportunity for all of us to be connected in solidarity with each other. And I think that is very much aligned with and what our mission is all about. So it's a great tagline, Dr. Julie. We like that a lot. <laughs> Thank you. And that was a beautiful answer, actually, and, and rather unique from some of the others I get. And I love that solidarity. So thank you for that. Well, let's let's start a little bit about you, Jim, because this has been your life mission for quite some time now. And 
Um, you wrote a beautiful book. You started the organization Build On, and I know it started with very personal reasons for you. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you started Build On and, and how your path got to this point? Sure. So um, I went to Michigan State University and graduated, and then, um, you know, I was recruited to, for, to take a couple of jobs um, in finance, and, but I declined and, and decided to work a couple of part-time jobs and save as much money as I could and backpack around the world and hitchhike mostly for about a year. And I did that, and I spent most of my time in developing countries, and uh, I was completely overwhelmed by the injustice of extreme poverty. I grew up in a very small town in Michigan and had never experienced anything like it. I never traveled out of our country up until that point and never to a developing country. And so uh, the first kind of experience I had with, with extreme poverty was in India. And and it, it was really difficult for me to, to sort of understand and wrap my arms around or my heart around, so to speak. But and then I went to Nepal, and I, you know, my, I love the mountains, so I was headed to Nepal to go climbing up into the Solo Kumbu region. Um, but the poverty index is much more extreme and severe in Nepal um, than it is in India. In fact, Nepal is the economically second poorest country in Asia, only next to Afghanistan. I didn't know that. And when I went to Nepal, I went there to, to sort of climb and, and trek and go up into the mountains. But again, I was confronted with, a, with the injustice of extreme poverty. But as I'm climbing up and hiking into the mountains, I'm like six days up and I pass through a village where they're celebrating the opening of a school that they had built themselves. And it was a two-day celebration. They never went home. They didn't go. And I was there for the tail end of the second day. It was a party. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was a big celebration. And they're literally dancing in the rain because it was monsoon season. And, and they're outside in the mud and the rain dancing and celebrating the school. So instead of just seeing the intensity and the injustice of extreme poverty. I, I am seeing the hope and the courage and determination they had around education. And, you know, I kept, you know, I, I passed through, I kept going and, and made it back to the U.S. maybe three or four months later. And, um, and, and, and when I got back to the States, I saw poverty here in a much different way, you know, and, and especially in, a, in urban communities, big cities in the U.S. And that sort of same perception or potential sense of, despair, you know, of hopelessness, because the, the issues around poverty in America are complex. In American inner cities, there are, there's gang activity, there's drug trafficking, there's all sorts of different layers that you don't necessarily deal with in developing countries. But I saw still that same sense of hope and determination and courage, especially, I thought, in the hearts of our youth. And so I wanted to act on all this um, and do something about my experiences, but I completely chickened out and instead took a job with GE Capital in, um, in finance, and, uh, and, and it was a great job. It was something I worked hard to, to get and uh, studied in college, um, but it wasn't for me, and, and finally I got the courage up to leave GE and start up Build On, and that was, that was 24 years ago. Wow. That, you know, the, the story of the courage for you to leave a corporate job and, and to go out on this limb is, is incredible in itself, but it's also representative of those students that you're helping. And, you know, so, so Build On has two different pieces that are important. And the one is the service learning program that really engages students in challenging urban areas. And, and you show them their limitless power. You show them 
what they can achieve through community action. Tell us more about that. How did you come up with this model? Well, I think that essentially um, we don't show them their limitless potential. They show us their limitless potential. It's, it's, really, it's really incredible, I think, how our students are able to rise up and overcome such extreme challenges through service and education. And um, your question is, how did we come up with the model? Yeah, you're building schools, but you're using these these after school programs to do so much. So there's two. I see these two pieces that are really brilliant. They're genius. Yeah. How did you come up with that? Well, um, I spent uh, I I I I knew I did not feel qualified to develop meaningful programs for urban youth. As I mentioned, I, I grew up in a small town in Michigan, so I knew nothing about the challenges of living living in a in a really tough neighborhood. And so I I wanted to learn from our students. I wanted to hear from them and experience what they experienced. So I moved into a neighborhood where they live, where a bunch of students uh, that we were working with live, and it was in Harlem. And I I spent three years there. And there was a a lot of different experiences that that came my way. You know, the first couple of weeks, I had trouble falling asleep because I could hear gunshots at night, you know. And and then I got over that because you become desensitized to it. Um, and then I, I uh, the, the half of my, the, about a few months after I moved in, um, the brownstone I was in, the half of it was abandoned and boarded up and a squatter moved in. And so, and she lived there for, you know, two or three years while I was, while I was in the other half of the building. And then um, one day I picked up my, the, the newspaper, the cover of the New York Times and my street corner was on it. And the caption underneath was "Worst Drug Trafficking Neighborhood in New York City." I did not know any of this stuff when I when I signed the lease <laughs> into and and decided to move into that place. And then, um, you know, my my uh, first Christmas came around, and the boiler broke uh, for the building, and and uh, so there's no heater or hot water, right? And I thought, well, you know, it's we got another week or two before the holiday. I'm sure they'll they'll figure it out. They did not. Two two months over two months with no hot water and no heat, and and then the probably the most outrageous thing, at least for me, was outrageous was getting arrested for stealing my own car. And I'm, I mean, literally, I'm driving down the road in in Harlem. I get pulled over by three squad cars. I roll my window down, and the officer has his weapon drawn. And this is in the '90s. I was in in, in from '97 to 2000 living in this apartment. And he's got his weapon drawn, aimed right at me, and he's like, put your hands on the wheel, you're driving a stolen car. And I said, okay, it's stolen, but I didn't steal it. <laughs> and he obviously didn't believe me, uh, understandably, but I tried to explain that the car was stolen, it was recovered, the police returned it to me, but they must not have taken it off the list. Mm-hmm. He did not want to hear that, and um, cuffed me and took me, uh, took me, to, took me in to jail, and I, and I was uh, I went from very nervous to to furious, you know, and 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 I'm sitting in this cell fuming, like, wow, I'm in in jail for stealing my own car. And it, it took me ten minutes to realize there was a guy in the in the cell next to me, in, in not in the cell next to me, in the cell with me rather. And finally, I'm like, wow, I got to ask the age old question. So I was like, so you know, what are you in for, you know? And and he's like a litany of drug-related charges, 10 ounces of this, 15 grams of that, something, you know, a half a pound of something else. And he's like, what about you? And I was like, man, I'm innocent. And he said, me too. <laughs> we'll be out of here in no time. 
And so, <laughs> it, you know, in retrospect, I'm able to, to see the humor in, in those things that happen. But why do I share that with you, Dr. Julie? Because our kids experience these things every day. They hear gunshots at night. They hear gunshots during the daytime. You know, their heat gets shut off. They are arrested for crimes they never committed. You know, and, and, and it is just, it's not acceptable. And in spite of that, living in, in, in this neighborhood for three years, I never heard one of our students complain or talk about finding a ticket out or escaping from the neighborhood. I, I hear them talk about lifting up the neighborhood, changing things, turning things around, right? These kids are courageous. They are determined. They are compassionate. They are fearless. And mm. so that is where our programs were really developed. We, we listened to the youth. We wanted to build something that was relevant and meaningful for them. So everything's based on a service learning platform where they map out their communities. They decide on the issues and the challenges that they want to address. They analyze, they study, they look at things. They take action through service and they change the world by building schools. And, and at this point, our students have contributed over 1.5 million hours of service. And, and 92% of the kids that get involved, not only graduate, they go to college. And these are kids that go to schools where the four-year graduation rate is like 55, maybe 60%. So again, I say, you know, it's, it's not about us unlocking the limitless potential of the students. It's about them unlocking and showing us what they can do. And they are doing it. They are stepping up. They are heroic. Wow. So you listen to the youth with literally this, immersion program that you didn't plan on, but you're right in the middle of it and inspired by them. When they, when they can take action through service, it improves the quality of their lives. What are some specific examples? Your graduation rate is much, much improved for all of these students who are in the program. What are, what are some of the other benefits and what are the other things that you're seeing coming out of our, our youth here in America that are in Build On? Oh, my goodness. So, um, I mean, as, as I mentioned, so our graduation rates and on to college are 92%. And our kids have contributed 1.5 million hours of service. And some of the stuff that I've seen them doing is amazing. They, they for instance, realize that, they're, that the elders in their neighborhoods are lonely and depressed. So they go and they visit. They spend time. They learn from the elders. They understand that, that children in elementary school are falling way behind academically. So they step up, they go and they tutor and they mentor uh, little kids. They also um, see that folks with developmental disabilities in their communities are not, they're not getting the services that they need. So they actually help provide services. And, and I got to tell you the most, some of the most inspiring service that our kids have done um, for, in my opinion, came out of the south side of Chicago, where uh, 15 of, the, of, of our students that were part of a bit much bigger build-on program of 150 kids decided that they wanted to work with adults with developmental disabilities. And so, um, you know, they were nervous about it, but they, they went and the, they came back after their first experience and session with the, with the adults and said, I, they, they told us they had no idea that they could make such an, a, a profound difference in the life of somebody, that they could touch and change somebody else's life. And it turns out that each of these 15 kids 
have a learning disabilities themselves. They all have IEPs. They all have, they're in special education. And, you know, my own son has, is autistic. He's on the spectrum. He's got a pretty severe seizure disorder. He's got several other reading-based learning disabilities. So when I heard what these students were doing, when I got to talk to them and see it, I realized that everybody has something to share. Everybody has something to offer. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's transformational, not just for the people on the other end, but for our kids. They see what they're capable of. They elevate expectations. Truancy goes down uh, 72% for the kids that get involved in our programs. And, you know, we've had some outside evaluations done on, on our metrics and our work. We've, we're trying to figure out why service has such an impact on academic engagement and they tell us there's a causal link between the programming and improved academic engagement of the kids. Not, uh, not, 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 a, not a correlation, but a causal link. And they point to 10 different outcomes uh, from, from the benefits of the program and specifically the service. And bottom line, when the kids enter our program, according to these evaluations, and one of them is 120 pages by Brandeis University, Bottom line, when kids get involved in the program, they come from a world where things are challenging and chaotic and there's not much certainty. When they get involved, they see that they can change things, that they have, they take control over their, their lives, their communities. They step up and they make change and they elevate expectations for themselves. They start coming to school. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, I mean, those are some of the, the benefits and, and I think significant benefits that we have seen from direct service, from people helping people. Mm. That, that is really beautiful and, and a model for, for everyone. You don't have to be this big nonprofit to look at this model for public schools, charter schools, private schools, and, and look at the benefits of service learning. And yet, so I, I have to mention this before we take our break. We have a few minutes here. I, I really want to get into the other piece of it is that you've really empowered these kids through their service learning and you've developed a program where they can literally travel overseas and build schools. Tell us about that part. Sure. So um, we run our service learning programs in 46 of the most challenging urban high schools in the United States. We're in the South Bronx in East New York. We're in Boston, up in Dorchester. We're in Detroit. We're on the south and west sides of Chicago. We're in Oakland and San Francisco. And in these programs, our students step up, as, as we talked about, and transform their communities through service. And these same kids help us build schools in some of the economically poorest countries on the planet. So we take cohorts of kids, 16 to 18 kids at a time, to live with host families uh, in, in developing countries, to share a mud hut with them to work alongside them building a school that's going to change everything for that community. And we're now working in seven different countries. We're in uh, Burkina Faso, Mali, Malawi, and Senegal in Africa. We're also in Nepal, and we're in Haiti and Nicaragua. And and we have built uh, 736 schools to date. We'll build 180 schools this year. In your intro, you mentioned one school every three days. It's actually every other day that we statistically break ground on a new school. Um, and our kids are out there helping to build them. And I, I was in Nepal uh, recently with a team of these kids, and I'm happy to talk about that, but you may need to take your break. I'm not sure that's up to you. 
No, we have we have a few minutes. I'd love to hear about it. Well, um, in Nepal, so Nepal is is uh, like I mentioned, the economically second poorest country in Asia, only next to Afghanistan, and we work with the poorest people in Nepal. We work with Tarus or indigenous people down in the Terai or Dalits, people that suffer from extreme discrimination based on the caste system. They are refused access to education. They are refused access to land. They have no land rights. They have very few human rights. Sometimes their children are taken and sold into slavery or even prostitution. It is complete insanity. And so we work in these communities. And and I went to one of these villages with a team of our students to build a new school. And before we left, we were able to um, visit a, a village where we had already built one. So we spend about 12 days in a village, maybe 14. We work in solidarity with the community to put in the foundation. And then um, we, we leave because the community contributes all the unskilled labor. So we intentionally pull our students out so that they can and do continue without us because the school is for their children. So that's part of our methodology. But before we leave, we always go and spend a day in a school we've already built so our kids get to experience the impact of education in, in communities like this. So we went to a village called Sukhumbasi Toll and hung out there for a day and went to class and spent time with the kids and the adults that used the school at night for adult literacy classes. And we met the founder of the village, a guy named Bahadur. And he told us that 40 years ago, you know, he and he's untouchable. It's a complete Dalit community, uh, all, all untouchables. He told us that 40 years ago, he heard about land where even Dalits could, could get a stake, could, could have their own property, their own home. And so he gathered up his family and started walking to get to this, this place. And it took him three days of walking to get there. And he found it. And he, started, he built a mud hut there. And another Dalit family came and they built a mud hut there. But then the police came. And they said, you can't stay here. You're, you're Dalits. You're untouchables. This, and this land this is government land. You can't stay here. And they didn't have any place to go. And then men with guns came. And they, they, they were from a neighboring village. And like, you are Dalits. We do not want you here. You've got to leave. But they have nowhere to go. And more Dalits start coming. And soon enough, they've got like 150, 200 kids that are in the village, this, this like squatter community. And so they, they go and they plead with the government to build them a school starting 40 years ago. And the government says, no, no, that's not your land. You're Dalits. You know, we can't build this school. And for 40 years, they, they tell the Dalits that their children just don't matter. And then they ask us if we will build a school for them. You know, and, and we said, no, we will not build a school for you. But if you're willing to contribute all of the unskilled labor, up to 2,000 volunteer workdays. If you're willing to send your daughters to school in equal numbers with your sons, we can build a school together. And it's a big risk for us, you know, because they, they don't have title to that land, mm. you know, and anything can happen. And, and, and yet they were willing to sign a covenant, which uh, uh, every place we build a school, the communities all sign a covenant. And in this case, they couldn't sign it, as in most cases. All they could do is add their fingerprints or thumbprints because they they're illiterate. And, and so we signed the covenant and we built the school and it changed everything, Dr. Julie. The, 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 after the school was finished, they went to the government and did not plead for help. They demanded teachers and said, we built our own school. 
Now you need to provide the teachers, and they did. And they have now demanded and are attaining their land rights. I'm telling you, discrimination ends where education begins. And and the men with guns came back. And And the police came again. But this time the police were there to defend that community and Bahadur. It is powerful. Our students are exposed to this and experience it. They work in solidarity with these community members. They understand the impact of education and that they have indeed changed the world. They come back and share that experience with their friends and it becomes contagious. Yeah. You know what? This is a beautiful story of the power and there's so much more. I know miracles are happening for your kids that are involved and for the communities that you're building schools from. Before we take our break, I want to make sure our listeners know how to find you. What is the website for Build On? It's buildon.org. Buildon.org. Okay. And there are beautiful videos on there. There's more about your programs, a lot of inspiration. So, um, yeah. And also your book. They can find that just about anywhere, Amazon, wherever. And your book is Walk in Their Shoes. So we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Dr. Julie Show. When we come back, more with Jim Zulkowski and Build On. styling your hair every day and do you want a good hairstyle every day hi i'm sarah schuster i went on a website called inventnow.org and after that i decided to invent something too something called the insta do just imagine you just put it over your head like a helmet does and you pick your hairstyle with the buttons on the side and you can have instant hairstyle in seconds People like it. People like Jeff Bart. I like it. And people like Kenneth. It's the summer thing, and it fits over your head, and it's great. Thank you, Kenneth. You should go to inventnow.org, and it could help you come up with your own invention. After all, look at me on the radio now. Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Get started on your own inventions, or just play some games at inventnow.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors Hall of Fame Foundation, and the Ad Council. Hey, Larry, mind if I sit down? Nope. This coffee tastes like uh, coffee. So what's going on? Not much. What's new? Not much. Okay, but can you please put the newspaper down while you say not much? What newspaper? This newspaper. Oh, dude, what happened to your face? I see one, two, three, four, five, six. Dude, what is this? Eleven pieces of... Toilet paper stuck to your face? I'm shaving in the dark to save energy. I'm helping the environment. That's a dangerous way to help the environment. Well, sometimes you have to sacrifice yourself for the greater good. Dude, there's an easier and safer way to help the environment without sacrificing yourself. Go green, go public. Take public transportation. It's good for the environment and you won't have to live behind a newspaper. Wow. But for now, put the newspaper back up. A message from the public transportation systems across the country. To learn more, visit publictransportation.org. I'm home, and 
and I love it. I'm home where I belong. I'm home and I love it. I'm home where I belong. It's always nice to come home, but these days, many Americans are at risk of foreclosure and losing their homes. Fortunately, help is available. Making home affordable is a free program from the U.S. government that has already helped over a million struggling homeowners, and we want to help you. I'm home, I'm home, and I love it. I'm home, I'm home. Find out now what your options are. Go to makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1-888-995-HOPE. The sooner you act, the better chance we can help you. I'm home. Brought to you by the U.S. Treasury, HUD, and the Ad Council. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. We're back. We're back on the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected, and I'm Julie Kroll. My guest today is Jim Zulkowski from Build On and the author of the book, Walk in Their Shoes. Before we get back to our conversation, I just want to let you know if you're enjoying what you're listening to and you want to share it with your friends, you can visit the archive on thedrjulieshow.com. All of the archives there for all of our past shows are there, and, and this show will be there as well, and all of our upcoming guests as well. So visit us there, thedrjulieshow.com, and stay connected all week on our Facebook page, All Things Connected. Jim, you also have a Facebook page, Build On, and they can find you there as well. Is that right? That's right. And you're on Twitter and you can get me at, at Jim, Jim Zalkowski on Facebook, too. Yeah, yeah, thanks. There's yeah, you're on Instagram, Twitter. I I know you're on all social media. So, Jim, right before the break you were talking about the impact that Build On had with this community and it not only makes a life-changing transformation for all of these students, but for entire villages. And so, hence the tagline of your book, can one person make a difference? Yes, you guys are. How do you identify where you're going to go build a school? How do you raise the funds? How do you get the local community involved? Let's talk about the nuts and bolts of this. How are you how are you really doing this? You you work to get all the local people involved and work right there with them. Okay, sure. Well, uh, first, I, w- I wanted to mention that the tagline isn't about the person on the cover of the book. Um, or, or necessarily the people that build on. It's about the reader. You know, it's about you, Dr. Julie. It's about all the listeners out there today. I think we all need to ask our, ourselves that question, and hopefully the answer for each of us is yes, so that we actually are able to step up and, and do it and light a fire and make some change that's really going that's gonna, to that's gonna change things. Um, so in terms of how we do it and the nuts and bolts, um, well, we're, you know, we've, been working now for 24 years, and on the international side, we've built our methodology out of completely immersive experiences. We have, um, and, and some of them have been very challenging, and we've had some near-death experiences, especially in the early days. 
And, uh, and, but out of those experiences, we were able to come up with a methodology that is completely informed by the community members, the leaders, the mothers and the fathers in the villages where we work. And it empowers them to lead. So there's a leadership committee in every village where we build a school that is formed. Six women and six men. They get the community behind the project so that um, all the, all the uh, adults in the village are able to contribute and help to build a school for the children in the community and for themselves with adult literacy classes also. And they agree to contributing all the unskilled labor to build the school, which, as I mentioned, is close to 2,000 volunteer work days. Um, and they sign a covenant committing also to sending their daughters to school in equal numbers with their sons, which is essential because especially in some of the West African countries where we work, there's uh, terrible gender discrimination. Girls are, are not allowed access to education, and, and they are, though. Fifty percent of all the students in our schools are girls or mothers. Um, so, so through this covenant process, a lot of sort of barriers are overcome. We also asked the Ministry of Education to sign uh, the covenant so that they agreed to providing the teachers for the schools. So everybody's all in, in advance. We have a community meeting. The covenant is signed. It is like one of the most profound and powerful experiences. And at one of these covenant signings, I was standing next to this woman, and she's just, her name is Felicia, and she is just proudly signing this covenant, thumbprinting it. Again, because very few people in the villages where we work can actually sign their names. And she gets done thumbprinting it, and she looks over at me, and she says, you, you know, I'm 86 years old. And I said, no, I did not know that. And she said, I had 11 children. Only four of them survived. But I've got grandchildren. And then she put her hand on her heart, and she said, now I can die in peace, knowing that my grandchildren have a school and a future. And I'm standing there with a bunch of kids from the South Bronx. And we, in that moment, realize how important this work is and what it represents to the community. So then we go on and, and we have, we'll have a team of skilled labor that's in the, pro, in the village for the entirety. Um, and there's a construction supervisor and or an engineer. So we'll provide the skilled labor and we also provide the engineering. And we bring in the materials and the resources, the roof sheeting, the, the bricks if necessary, the the, or cinder blocks, the, the concrete, all the materials to build a permanent school. And we work side by side with the community members every step of the way. They build the school, they lead it. And as a result, out of these 736 schools we've built, it's standing room only. We're at or above capacity. 95,000 children, parents, and grandparents attending these schools every single day because they built them. They led the project. Wow. Okay, so this is, uh, that's a beautiful story. And it's, it just really is mind blowing, I think, for most of us to really hear that you're doing this with all of this volunteer help, and you're bringing in this skilled team and the community gets involved, the language barriers have to be huge. And then again, the the cost of that. And so, how can our listeners get involved? How can people support you? And how do you raise your funds to literally lift up these materials, get them there, and, and get people on the ground? Well, the, the listeners can get involved in a variety of ways. I mean, if, if you are so inclined, you can co come and help build a school with us. You can form a chapter in your community, which 
simply means getting a group of people together, working, raising the funds to build a school, and we will take you over to the, the village and you'll be able to live in the village for a week and work alongside the community and, and share in that experience of building the school. And to do that, just go to buildon.org and you'll see a drop down for chapters. Check it out. You can sign up and, and we'll reach out to you and, and dial you in and get you set up. Um, and it costs only about 30, between 30 and $35,000 to build an entire school. So if you get a team of 15 people together, that's, you know, 2000 maybe $2,200 per person in terms of what you got to raise. And, and, it, and it, these schools are designed to be there for 100 years. So generations of children will benefit from your work. Um, we also have programming now where you can volunteer and serve alongside our students um, and get your company or your business involved in working with and mentoring the kids that, that we work with in the different urban communities in the United States. So there's a variety of ways for folks to get involved. And, uh, and yes, you, you certainly can donate, and that's easy to do on our website as well. So that's how folks can get involved. And what was your other question, Dr. Julie? I'm sorry. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's okay. You know, I think that this is, it's just incredible. One of the things that, I, that I'm really curious about that was one of my questions was, how do you identify these villages and schools how do you know where you're going to go next to build? And and then secondly, how do you overcome the cultural and language barriers? Right. Okay. So good question. So um, we 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 sort of plop down in the countries where we've committed to, and we work and keep building schools until they don't need them anymore. And um, we just expanded to Burkina Faso last year, so that's a good case study in answering your question. So. To, to expand out and start working in Burkina, which is the fourth poorest country on the planet, according to the UN Poverty Index, um, we check to see if they have a reasonably stable government and a ministry of education that can and will provide teachers for the schools that we build. Once we're assured of that, we go and look for uh, partnerships and folks that can introduce us to the communities uh, and the villages where poverty is most immense. We see causal link between extreme poverty and illiteracy. So the only debate is whether poverty drives illiteracy or whether illiteracy drives poverty. Either way, it doesn't matter. We, we got to build schools where the poverty is most, most desperate. And so we look at the poverty indexes and in communities that, that absolutely need schools. And then we Go, to, go out and survey the, the villages. And we look and talk to community members and they, um, they talk to us about what they want out of education. We want to ensure that they not only need a school, but that they want it, that they're willing to build it, that they're willing to contribute the labor and they're willing to send their daughters to school in equal numbers with their sons. So this is about a six-month process, just going out and, and really getting a feel for the regions where education is really, uh, there's a tremendous need for schools. And once we're able to qualify all of that, you know, the basic need for education, desire to have an ability to build it, then we can go forward and start building. Um, and, th and that's, that's what we've done in Burkina Faso. Um, and then the, I think the other part of your question, the cultural barriers and the language, actually not a, not a big challenge for us. You know, our approach 
as I've explained, is, is very much ground up, and it's very empowering for community members to lead the projects and build their own schools. And so um, they, uh, they approach us. Communities will walk sometimes many hours, sometimes many days to, to find a build on office or representative and, and petition us to come and visit their village. And, um, and, then, and we also, our teams are all local. So in Mali, for instance, they're Malians. In Burkina, they're all from Burkina or from that region. So there aren't any problems overcoming language because our, our employees, our team members are, are from the, the regions, the local regions where we build schools. When we bring teams of American students or corporate executives, we, we take you know a lot of uh, executives and managers at major corporations go build schools with us. GE does it. Um, ton, many, many different organizations are doing it right now. Whenever we do that, we bring uh, translators that are able to um, immerse and stay in the village for the entire project and uh, make sure everybody understands each other. We also prepare folks before they go. So if you go on one of our treks to build a school, there'll be three different workshops that help you prepare for the cultural immersion and, and help to, to sensitize us to the, 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 the wonders and the beauties of the local cultures where we, where we work. Wow. You know, this is really a beautiful story, and I just congratulate you and applaud you for this incredible service to all of humanity. So thank you for that. What is your greatest joy, Jim? What's your greatest joy? Hmm. Boy, that's that's a great question, Dr. Julie. I think there are so many of them. I can talk about some of the joys. I don't know which one's the greatest, but you mean my greatest joy in terms of the work or yeah. my family or or spiritually? Yeah, just in or? terms of the work. Like, I mean, literally, you're you're making a difference in lives around the globe here. And I'm just wondering what's what's the what brings you the greatest joy on a day to day basis when you're doing this? Well, uh, the people, the community members, Bahadur, the guy I told you about, or Felicia in Africa, um, or, or some of the students that we work with. And, you know, I was um, on the south side of Chicago a few weeks ago and got to spend some time with one of our students, a girl named Shayla Ocampo. And um, we work with many hundreds of kids on the south and west sides in Chicago. And Shayla and I were doing some service together, and I find out she's done 311 hours of service in like two years. Wow. And, and so many people want to know why our kids do so much service. And I, so I keep asking the kids, why do you do it? So I asked Shayla, I said, Shayla, why? Why do you do all this service? And she said, because it liberates. You know, and she's this tiny, tiny little girl, you know, really... Uh, and she, she and her family immigrated from Mexico, and she's there. And, and so she, I'm like, it liberates. What does that mean? And, and she told me about the first time she went to do service at a place called Sukasa, right? And it's an it's a old church that was converted into a shelter for homeless families on the south side. And she um, said, you know, when I went over there, my heart's pounding, you know, it's and, and I was like, were you nervous? She goes, no, I was excited. You know, and she, so she walks over there and I'm like, why were you so excited? And, 
And she says, well, they, it's a, there's families in there. There's children. You know, I want to go help those children. She told me, I, she says, I've been waiting my whole life to go do service at this place. And I said, okay, so what happened? You know, and she walked in that day, her first time, and, and she immediately was introduced to a bunch of children and started tutoring them and mentoring them and was just really in the moment, just inhaling it all. And then she sees this 14-year-old girl. And, and the girl's off by herself and Shayla's maybe 15, 16. So she's not like much older, but she sees the 14 year old. She goes, come on, you can join us. There's something for everybody to learn here. And the girl's like bitter and cynical, like, no, no, I don't want to. And so Shayla just quietly walks over and says, listen, there's nothing to be ashamed of in living in, in a place like this. And the 14 year old just unloads. She's like, what do you know about shame? What do you know about living in a place like this? And, and, and Shayla just quietly says, can you just come with me? Follow me for two, two minutes, maybe three minutes. So they walk down the hall and they walk up a flight of stairs and then they walk down another hall and Shayla stops in front of this picture hanging on the wall. And she points to inside the, the frame, a picture of a, a little nine-year-old girl. And then she looks at the 14-year-old and she, she, she says, that's me. She says, I lived in this shelter for two years. And she mm-hmm. said that I, I, when I was younger, I lived in five different shelters. You know, and, and my mother always had two jobs. And when I was nine years old, I was in charge of all my younger siblings, three siblings. And she said it was terrible. She hated it, she said. She said that she, there's so much discrimination. You know, and she missed an entire year of school when she was living in one of these shelters. And, and, and she said, yes, I felt ashamed. I felt ashamed of where I was living. I felt ashamed in some ways of my family. But Dr. Julie, in that moment of solidarity, in that moment of service, in that moment of compassion, all of that shame is washed away. All of it for Shayla and for the 14-year-old. Wow. That's why Shayla told me that service liberates. And that is that is where I derive my joy. From, you know, spending time with people that are as heroic, who are as determined, who are as compassionate and courageous as Shayla. That's 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 what it's that's what it's all about. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I love that story. You are a good storyteller. I want to let our listeners know that you you are a great storyteller in the book, Walk in Their Shoes. And um, it's an incredible tribute to not only the work you're doing, but the work that, that many, many, many people are doing. So thank you for that. You know, I, I really would like to ask you a bigger question. Um, we... We love to dream the world into being and, and co-create a positive future here on the Dr. Julie Show and really talk about it. What's your vision for the future and where are we going and how are we getting there? For the future of Build On? For the future of the world. Oh, man. <laughs> well, I'll start with the vision that we have for Build On and maybe I can build out from there. But um, so... Um, so, you know, we have we have actually mapped out a 20-year vision for, for Build On. And right now we work with about 4,000 youth in, in American 
uh, urban high schools every week. And there's 95,000 children and parents and grandparents attending the schools that we've built in developing countries every day. In our 20 years from now, what what we see is uh, is, a, is a situation where there's a million children going to build on schools every day and 100,000 urban youth that are participating in our programs every day and that the programs have become even deeper and more meaningful than they already are. And that these kids, not just that are in, in the program uh, that will be in the program 20 years from now, but the kids that are in the program now, the community members, the children that are attending the schools that we built, they will lead systemic change. They will lead the effort to break the cycle of poverty, illiteracy, and low expectations, and they will do it through service and education. So we see that as the most essential thing. I mean, the metrics are are incredible when you think about a million people going to schools and 100,000 urban youth mobilized to transform their communities. But what's much bigger than that, where, the, where the, the impact becomes exponential, is when you get the cumulative number of these students together and you see the impact in the ways that they are changing the world, that they are working to break that desperate cycle of poverty. So that, that is our vision, and that's, that's why we work so hard and do what we do, and that's why we're growing and trying to grow and expand our work. That's the vision for Build On. And, and the vision for the world, man, I mean, I, I have never been so bold as to formulate an ultimate vision for the world. Um, but, I, I mean, I, if, if we were going to build out from there, I would say that I'm optimistic um, about where we're going. Because, you know, with this generation of youth, they, they are not just the future, they are the present. They are, they are not waiting to take their turn. They're taking their turn now. To make change on, on incredible levels. Kids from the toughest neighborhoods are stepping up from the most challenging circumstances. And when, when you think about the, the world, when these kids are leading, when they are in, in, the, in, in leadership roles, I, I'm very optimistic um, about, about the direction that we're going because I have confidence and faith in the youth and the way they're stepping up right now. Mm. You know, I I have confidence and faith watching your programs, and you're not only transforming the lives of individuals, but you're transforming the future of education. And service learning is huge, and you're a big part of how it's working in the world. And I, I love to tell the story of what's working. And, you know, I, I also, as you were talking, and you were talking about just increasing the number of kids and the schools and all these things. I also saw some of these kids and, and community leaders from these impoverished countries around the world potentially doing immersion experiences themselves, coming back over here or learning from each other in, in whole new ways. It's just exciting all the potential that that Build On can really mentor for many of us. Oh, I agree. I think in, in the possibilities are limitless, really. I mean, it's in their hands. They're going to step up and they're going to do what they think is important. And I'm sure it will make a real difference. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, it, you know, the, the other inspiring piece is how you've empowered 
the local people and and facilitated that. And and I know it sounds um, maybe absurd to some of our listeners here to imagine building a school for thirty to thirty five thousand dollars, but it's real and it happens. And so good for you. And I just want to encourage our listeners again before we close here that they can get involved. Go to buildon.org, B-U-I-L-D-O-N.org, and look at ways you can get involved. Look at ways you can support not only this organization, but communities all over the planet and, and students right in your own communities. There's there's a lot of inspiration there. There's just, oh my gosh, it's it's really a beautiful thing. So Jim, thank you. I want, we just have a few minutes to close. Do you have any inspiring message you want to deliver to our audience at this point? I, I loved how you said, can one person change the world? And that's about us. Maybe you can leave us with some kind of inspiration about how each one of us can change the world. Well, um, first, I, I, I want to, I appreciate, you know, the, your sentiments and you talk about how we're empowering our youth. I got to tell you, they are empowering me. And they are empowering us too. It is very, very much mutual. And I think that the probably the some of the most important lessons. And I feel like I stand on the shoulders of great people and humble people. And some of the greatest lessons I've learned have come from people that can't sign their own names. And one of them is a guy named Stephen Tombani. And um, Stephen uh, is a guy I met in Malawi, Africa, in the first village where we ever built a school in Africa, in a place called Miss Omali. And he was the most dedicated person on the work site. He's out there every single day. He became my mentor. He became my best friend in that village. You know, this guy had my back. And everything was going along well until um, my brother collapsed from malaria and almost died. And then eight days later, I had a 104-degree fever, lost consciousness. I had malaria and dysentery. It was a dangerous combination. But by the grace of God, my brother Dave was able to drag me into one of two hospitals that they had in the entire country at the time. And when I came out of it a couple of days later, the doctor said, two more hours away from this hospital, and you would have been dead And um, because my veins had already collapsed. And so... I was actually feeling pretty good, and and after a couple of days, decided to go back to the village. And as I was walking, I, you know, the last four or five miles, I saw the the community members that I knew and realized when they contract malaria, they don't have a near death experience; they die. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 so I was overwhelmed and almost walked away. And and then. You know, I thought to myself, but if they could build that school, if we can build the school, maybe they can break the cycle of extreme poverty and they don't need people like me to come and help them out. And so I kept going and placated myself with that idea. And and Stephen was there. My brother had to come back to the States to recover. And, you know, and, and we got that school built, you know, and, and I, I knew, you know, in, in my moments of, of fear that that, that guy was never going to quit. He would not stop. He just kept going. I got to hold his baby daughter, his first child, just born weeks after that experience, Ruthie in my arms. And I knew, you know, that Stephen's not going to stop. Though I'm terrified, this guy is not. So we get the school built and 150 kids are attending. And I, and, and I, and that's 20, over 20 years ago. And I'd never been back because so many crazy things happened. And finally, 
I, I went back to that village um, uh, not too long ago. And when I arrived, I was devastated because I found out that our construction supervisor, his wife, his children all died from AIDS. The chief died from AIDS. You know, the village is celebrating, welcoming me back, which was really wonderful. But I, my knees buckled. I couldn't find Stephen. I didn't know where Stephen was. 20 minutes go by, and finally he emerges from the crowd. And I will never forget that moment, Dr. Julie, because I will never forget what Stephen gave to me. In my darkest moments of fear and despair, Stephen gave me the courage to keep going. And then he led me to the center of the village. I did not know which school we built. Instead of one school and 150 kids that, that we had built, there's five schools and a thousand kids going to school every day. They built those other four schools without us. And, and 533. It, it's amazing. And Stephen says to me, you are the ignition. You know, and I said, no, Stephen, you lit the fire 20 years ago. And now Ruthie, his daughter, is lighting the fire. And so the, the message, I think, the most important message or, or, or lesson I've learned is that if we have the courage to confront our fears, you know, the way Stephen did and, and get, gave me the courage to do, if we have that courage, then we can light a fire. And, yeah. and, and education is a fire that nobody can put out. So step up, man. Confront your fears when you have them. We all do. And light that fire. Oh, thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim Zolkowski of Build On. And thank you, listeners. We'll be right back here next week. I appreciate you so much, Jim. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Dr. Julie. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. Bye.